Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Shine a Light On series. Today, we'll be shining a light on becoming an entrepreneur with Allison Kopp. Thank you, Allison, for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And to start, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Allison, and I have been an entrepreneur for the last six years and been an, an investor as well and been in early stage startups for pretty much my entire career. Once I graduated from Santa Clara, also go Broncos and joined an early stage startup, ran their operations all the way up to through scaling and then started my company. Been doing that for the, the majority of the last few years. And then also I invest as a partner at a venture capital fund that invests in early stage female founders on the side. So that's a lot of fun. I serve on a few boards and advisory things as well to keep it really packed in my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Sounds like it for sure. And could you tell us a little bit more about the business that you founded? Yeah, so my company is called Artemis. It's an ag tech company. Uh, we're pure software play and help digitize all the pen and paper processes on the farm. And we specifically work with greenhouse operators, vertical farms. So things that are more fully controlled, where you have the opportunity to actually control, for lack of a better word, your environment and steer what's happening within the farm. So we're working a lot with lettuces, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, some berries. And we also do cannabis as of the end of last year. In our our whole vision is so much of this work happens on pen and paper, maybe in Excel, if you're kind of lucky. And what we can do is take that all into a digital platform, really control what's happening from seed to harvest and managing labor and production, and then start to work on the systemic things that we all talk about in the food system, traceability, food safety, uh, sustainability, profitability, pretty much all the things that end in itty, apparently, <laughs> and work on scaling those out to what we really need to feed the growing global population over the next few decades. Awesome. No, thank you for sharing. And what would you say inspired Artemis at the beginning? So my last company that I worked at, I was leading operations and working on kind of this exact problem, but not from a technological standpoint, more from a production standpoint. So we were actually financing, building and operating greenhouses and growing produce closer to the point of consumption. So closer to retailers like Whole Foods and things. And our whole idea was by controlling the environment, you can get better profitability and quality and all these things. But also by partnering with retailers, you can attract traditional lenders to the business and and uh, my job on that was about 50% data science related. So on farm, how do you increase revenue? How do you think about efficiencies? How do you think about those problems and, and try and really utilize everything that you have in front of you to solve those problems. The other half was thinking about how you scale up. What happens when you want to open 500 of these locations, sitting in permitting offices around the country, trying to figure that out. And those two things together became exponentially harder because we didn't have the underlying infrastructure from a technology standpoint to actually evaluate all the information and to ask the right questions and to answer those questions down the line. That became a big enough pain point for me that I started looking into, was there something on the market? Were people even thinking about this? Was I completely off base? And it turned out all of the farms in the ecosystem were having the same challenges and there was nothing on the market yet. And so this became a nagging point in the back of my head for a while until about a year later when it just became sort of blew up. And so I decided to start the company. The company I worked for became our first customer. So we got sort of lucky in that respect. That's cool. A lot of people have a hard time finding that first 
first customer. And so we phased out and started the company, like I said, six years ago now. Was it a big jump, would you say, to become an entrepreneur, start your own venture? Or was it easy, like this has to happen? It's totally easy. Everybody just go out and do it. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, it's super hard, right? It's interesting to think about because I never really wanted to become an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people, especially now that entrepreneurship has become so commonplace, especially in universities as part of curriculum and things that people can set out and say, oh, I want a career in entrepreneurship. I want to start a business. What ideas do I have that I could actually start? I was never that person. I was so happy. I actually thrived for a really long time at trying to be the person who was early stage employee, who got to wear 17,000 hats, who got ownership and accountability and all these things, but really saw a business from ideation to that scale point. That's what I, that's where I thrive. I did almost everything in my power to not start this company. I tried to get other people to do it. Uh-huh. I even tried to contract it out to other people to do it and was like, I'll pay you to do this because I, I need it so badly. Try to get bigger companies to just think about it as a market. It just nothing happened. And so I finally did it. It's very interesting, though, because in hindsight, I can't imagine myself doing anything other than being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And I think that my personality, my mindset, the way I think about things is very oriented towards being a founder. But I also took a hard path, like sole founder, we definitely bootstrapped for a while, went venture back. So we did, you know, tons of things that are probably hard. (laughs) So everything but everything about being a founder is hard. It's definitely not an easy path. It's for sure the most rewarding, you know, one of the most rewarding mm. paths you can take, as you know, but also very difficult. That's very interesting. I don't know if I've heard this story of like, I tried to pass this off, oh, this idea off to others. <laughs> <laughs> I would have paid people money to do it too. And nobody, <laughs> no takers. So that it's left me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So taking a step back for a second, how would you define what an entrepreneur is in general for people who aren't very sure? I mean, an entrepreneur, right, you could define kind of anyway, right? You start something that's an entrepreneur. But I think what's probably more helpful is what does that mean on a day to day basis? Since the way that I would define the entrepreneur's job and founder's job is really threefold. One, you're looking at runway, right? That is one of the most important things. It doesn't matter if you're opening a cupcake shop downtown in your you know local town or a venture backed business that you want to be become a billion dollar business. You need to have enough money at all times to make sure that you're always alive. So making sure that you have the right cash, that you choose the right type of capital is really important. You know, do you go venture backed? Are you raising debt? Are you thinking about project finance? Are you just maxing out credit cards until you sort of get there? Is it customer financed? All those are different options that you can take as an entrepreneur, but making sure that there's enough money in the bank that all of your obligations are paid for. That's really one very, very, very important part. Two is your people, right? Your your job is to always be hiring always be looking for the next person to join your team. Even if you're not hiring, you're always hiring, but thinking about selling the business externally so that you can put the right people on your team. And secondary to that is making sure that you develop culture and develop how your team interacts with each other, communicates with each other. Is it remote? Is it in person? We have all these sort of new questions that we get to ask ourselves, but Mm -hmm. the people and their time at your company, it's your job to make sure that the people you hire are successful. And if they're not, you have to unfortunately let them go, but that's your job is people management. And third is vision. So it's your job to understand where the future is going because of your company, right? And so I always say an entrepreneur starts a company because they cannot imagine a future without the thing that you're building. You just can't imagine Mm -hmm. that future is very different than the future that exists today. So you're changing a trajectory into a world that has the thing that you're building. You're so passionate about this thing, you cannot imagine the world existing without it. And again, same thing, does not matter if it's the cupcake shop, an accounting practice, a venture-backed technology company. You're just that excited by the thing and you believe it should exist in the world. 
And so your job is to understand kind of the 10 years out, the 20 years out, the 50 years out, that future, what it looks like, and then help all the other people along the way get caught up and understand and be on the same page and be aligned about what that future looks like and where it's going. And that's everybody from that team to all of the stakeholders, whether it's investors or a bank or your customers. It's to tell the story over and over and over again and get people along for the ride. So those are the three things I would say, you know, my job on a day-to-day basis are. I love that you you mentioned sort of different versions of entrepreneurs. I think people forget about, you know, yeah. hole in the wall, family owned businesses. So I'm glad you mentioned that, especially in the Bay Area. Yeah, my parents are both entrepreneurs in a non-traditional way, right? My father started an accounting practice when we were kids. It's so funny because for the first few years of starting the business, he couldn't really understand the venture backed model. He's like, I don't understand why people are giving you money. You don't have any revenue. Your job as a founder should be to make money. And I'm like, <laughs> I agree. We're just doing it in different approaches. And he would talk uh-huh. about his customer acquisition strategy back in you know, the 80s, 90s, where he would just be plastering flyers on people's car windshields and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like that grassroots marketing, I think is inherent in my blood too, of how we do things. And my mother started a business recently, a few years ago, she, she became a blogger and she's got literally a few million readers, followers on her blog wow. and has like 20,000 Instagram followers or something. She's like way more famous than I am, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. And she's just, you know, doing amazing things in the travel industry. So all by the way, while holding down normal, you know, normal jobs, air quote mm-hmm. for anybody listening, because they both work for government agencies sort of full time too. So oh, okay. the idea of like hustling and building and doing, you know, making a business is probably inherent in my blood. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really cool. My mom also owns business. So yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's a, a gene, an entrepreneurship gene, but that is cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, if you're raised around it though, there's something about the work ethic of entrepreneurs, I think that does carry through so. when you see it. I think it's really probably super helpful, but mm-hmm. yeah, cheers to, to moms who run businesses. That's, yes, that's awesome. Definitely. So you seem very well seasoned for sure in the entrepreneurial world. What would you say your, your favorite part of the year journey has been so far and maybe a challenging or least favorite part as well? At our company, we have company offsites. Now they're virtual, but unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but we've actually always been a fully remote team uh, for the most part. Uh, So we always operated kind of like 90% systemically remote and 10% sort of in person. We had an office, but it was for offsites and things like this. So our culture was kind of always established in a way that we had hired people externally. And so we inherently had had once a year, these big offsites where we'd all come together and we strategize about the new year. We think about what's going right, what's going wrong with the company people would lead sessions where they were really good at something that wasn't necessarily Artemis related at all. Somebody led a session once on solving wicked problems in systems thinking. This is a really, really hard thing to do. Things that don't have obvious solutions. That was a really awesome session. Or our CTO actually led a session on coding and had every single person, including sales team, everybody sort of open up their laptops and built an application in an hour, right? And the idea that it could build empathy amongst the different departments and thinking and how people solve problems internally, externally, is really fun. And so I'd say my favorite thing about the entrepreneurship journey so far has definitely been building a team. And that offsite in particular, offsites to me are one of my absolute favorite days of the entire year because it's a chance to sort of step back as a founder and actually see the team that you've built to have them off the rails a little bit, kind of run with things and do things with that they see them and to just get really excited about their passions and their excitement. It just carries through. And so I think team building is by far my favorite thing. I love the culture that we've built at our company. I really love the team. The flip side of this is that the hardest thing 
is probably when things aren't working on the Mm -hmm. team. And when you do have to let folks go is it's awful. It's never fun. You know, I always say people like to default to that person wasn't fitting. They were the wrong person, but it's also part that's on you as a founder. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to step back and say, you know what, maybe we hired the wrong person and that's on me for not doing that correctly. Or I didn't train or I didn't give the resources or, you know, those types of things. It's difficult to do it. And it's never fun. Unrelated to team. I do think one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur, and if you're going to start a company, you should just be ready for it uh, because it's inherent in all companies, but is the roller coaster that it is. Again, it might be the good thing and the bad thing, but the highs and lows are so severe in entrepreneurship and it can go at the flip of a coin, right? You can have a good day and then all of your customers decide to leave the next day. Mm -hmm. And then you close a million dollar deal the next day. It's just sort of a wild, wild ride. And that takes a toll. So that's another one of the things that I think I find most challenging is just managing a neutral sort of mindset as much as you can throughout the process. Yes. Chaos is definitely part of the process. Live in the chaos. Yeah. Let it in. Yes. For sure. I know we talked a little bit about this idea of an entrepreneurial gene, which I've just heard before. Do you think it takes a certain type of person to become an entrepreneur or what kind of characteristics do you think entrepreneurs typically have? I do think that there are traits that make it potentially easier to be an entrepreneur. And I also think that there are traits that tend to be ubiquitous across founders. But I also think that there's so many paths to entrepreneurship that I wouldn't say that there's a finite set of things that, oh, if you have these, you're probably going to be a good entrepreneur. Maybe some psychologists, sociologists would disagree, but I know that there's a lot of people working on this actually about thinking about the personality tests and thinking about what things actually tend to be good founders traits and things. I took one recently that was awesome about founder traits. And it turns out I'd be a good founder according to the personality (laughs) test. So we're in the right career path. But I do think that from an easier standpoint, so we talk about the stress, the chaos, right? If you are a personality who does not thrive in that environment, because there are definitely personalities who do thrive in chaos, who thrive in uncertainty, who like that element, I do think your path is going to be a lot more difficult and probably personally risky for yourself, for your mental health, frankly, because it is unavoidably chaotic. Mm -hmm. And so that's something to think about is personally, how do I handle uncertainty and chaos? The fact that you're always running out of money, frankly, until you're not, right? And it's an everyday thing, right? And so that's something I think you have to be mindful of just at the base onset. I tend to look so as an investor, putting my investor hat on a little bit and less of a founder hat. The things that I tend to look for are grit. You know, have you hustled before at something, right? Have you built something in some capacity? Are you going to stick it out until the very, very end, whatever that end is, right? And that end could just be successful business operations. But are you going to be the person that for seven years, for 10 years, for 20 years is going to drive through all of the difficulty to be around? So I do tend to look for grit in some capacity. Something that I find really interesting that people will talk about is one of the big investors famously said something years and years ago about how there was a, a profile of a founder that was like white male drop out of college, right? Wearing a hoodie or something something. And like, anytime I see that, I'll fund that, right? And obviously complete BS, right? Mm -hmm. Like anybody can be a founder. But something that a lot of investors look for is, you know, Ivy League and came from Google and has the pedigree. And I almost flip it. And I'm like, tell me what you've done. Tell me what you've built. Why are you doing this? Why are you excited about this thing? Again, why are you going to be around in 20 years building this thing? Smart, right? You have to be intelligent to build a company. You just have to be. You have to understand the ins, the outs. You have to be the smartest person capable of being the smartest person in your industry 
in some capacity. You have to be curious. If you are not, you're going to get so bored so fast and you have to be able to understand how to get out of situations. So being the person that needs to know everything there is to know about things is a really good trait. I think I'm doing it because you love it and you're interested in it, not just to impress your friends or something like that innate need to learn is so important. Being a good leader, right? Being a good visionary, being those types of things tend to make you stand out and be able to navigate the ups and downs. But those are the things that usually stand out to me. I think there's a lot of other traits that people will debate happily in the industry about, you know, what a founder needs to be. But really at the end of the day, if you're the person who can sell things, right? Like if you can sell it to the business idea, to investors, to teammates, to the stakeholders, and you can get people excited about your idea and you're the smart person in the room and you know how to hire smart people, smarter people, frankly, than you, and you understand the strategy and how to think about it. And you're going to be the person around at the end of the day, like you're probably qualified to, to jump in and you probably have those traits that make you a good founder. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that list. I'm definitely taking some mental notes here. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to switch it up for a second, talk about the entrepreneurial mindset and how to get it and how to become an entrepreneur. As someone with an engineering background, I've heard a lot of students from middle school onward say that they can never be engineers because it has a really intimidating connotation to it. But I think engineers are, are problem solvers. And I know you simplified sort of the definition of an entrepreneur earlier as well. I think a lot of job roles require what engineers have in their skill set anyway. So I think anyone can be an engineer or an entrepreneur. But similarly, I hear the same doubts about students in regards to becoming an entrepreneur or starting a business. I'm just curious of your thoughts, why you think it is intimidating. That's a great question. I also, by the way, say the same exact thing. So I studied physics and I always say that physics is just a degree in problem solving. So right. I say the same thing, right? It just teaches you how to think about the world a little bit different, right? You just have a different approach to how to solve problems and think about things. So for anyone listening who's thinking about a career in engineering, go for it. First of all, we should say definitely yes. go do it. And anybody who's in middle school thinking it's going to be too tough, you should try it. <laughs> Encourage that. I think entrepreneurship is really intimidating, mostly because of the risk. You're starting from nothing. You're creating something that doesn't exist yet in some capacity. To do that, there's a ton of risk. And if we're looking at students, for example, you're looking at a person who probably doesn't have a backboard of financial security, right? So we'll just make an assumption that there's not family money here or something. Of course, that changes the risk profile if you do, but we'll use myself as an example, but a lot of people who are probably listening. So you haven't had a job yet, maybe a full-time job yet. Maybe you have, you don't have financial security. You now owe potentially a lot of money to a university somewhere or college somewhere. You're starting out from that lack of experience, thinking about how do I build this thing that doesn't exist in the world yet? I think I can do it, but how would I possibly get investors? How would I possibly get a team to follow me? I'm not 40. I don't have years of experience. I haven't done this before. And that's like textbook imposter syndrome. It's textbook and it doesn't go away for what it's worth. For anybody listening, it does not go away. You will have imposter syndrome until you're sitting on your deathbed and you realize that you are actually the most experienced person in the thing that you do. I really don't know that it goes away until you've just done things so repetitively and have that experience under your belt. So in entrepreneurial mindset, so much of it comes from your ability to take on risk. And my job on a podcast talking to students is probably not to convince you that you can, but it's to ask you to ask yourself if you think you can, right? And if you're a type of personality that maybe nobody's just asked that before, and you're sitting there and you're saying, 
you know what, I think I can take the risk. Maybe I'll create a path towards optimizing for that. So, you know, let's say financial security is the thing that's getting in the way. And you're like, I don't have any savings and I can't start something and just make no salary for a year. Well, go out and do something, right? Go out and do something. You don't have to start the company today. You don't have to start a business today. You can, but you don't have to. When I started the company, I was bartending. Uh, I basically was working the startup from 6 a.m. roughly till about 4.35 p.m. Then going out and bartending until midnight, 1 a.m. coming home. We joked my husband when he first met me, I just had piles of cash from bartending that I would use to like put in an envelope to pay my rent. It was just such a mess, but that's the nature of life, right? It's messy. I needed the financial security. I lived in New York City. I had to pay my rent and I didn't have a financial backstop. So, but you can do it. But it's also naive to say that everyone can do that, right? Mm -hmm. There's just people who don't have that flexibility, but you can try to take the risk appetite if it's what you think you want to do. And that's what I would say is, you know, again, my job isn't to convince you and say everybody should go start a company because I don't think everybody should start a company. (laughs) But if you're sitting there already kind of thinking about it and you're already thinking about becoming an entrepreneur and you're obsessing over an idea, you're probably already in a situation where it's likely that you might. And then you have to ask yourself, can I take the risk? And if I can't, what do I need to do to get myself in a place where I can. But again, likely the people who are like, you know what, I can take the risk. I'm going to just jump. That's probably the person who's got the right sort of risk mindset for Mm -hmm. being an entrepreneur in the first place, because everything you do in an entrepreneur, whether it's personal, whether it's my financial security, my personal security, my mental health, or the companies, it's all risky from day one, even on the investor side, everything we do is risky on the investor side. So everything about startups is, is risky. What's your risk appetite, right? Like how willing are you to take those jumps is definitely part of the entrepreneur mindset. No, definitely. Thank you for that advice. And another thing I just want to touch on is at least being started by technical people. I saw a lot of friends build a lot of cool apps over the years, but I almost feel like this knowledge deficiency of the business side of things Mm -hmm. kept them or prevented them from even considering starting a business. So as someone who studied physics, how did you end up an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I think that maybe you'd have to ask my investors, but I think that when investors thought of me early on, I was interestingly the hybrid of both technical and non-technical. I had spent most of my career in not as technical roles, more data science, but then transitioned more into operations. Also had the technical experience to do a lot of the early prototyping and things like that. And I worked with, um, we'll call a co-founder early on, really did help build the initial sort of version of the system with me. And so luckily there, we did have a pairing there. And that's something I recommend to everyone too, is it's so funny. I love coming on this podcast one, because you are technical. And so a lot of this conversation is around probably talking to engineers to get in starting companies. It's so funny because on the flip side in the industry, what we almost always hear is the opposite is somebody with business experience who wants to start a company, but they feel the technical gap. (laughs) And so I think maybe just knowing that the other side is also true is probably helpful, but pairing up is one of the easiest ways to do this, right? Like get a co-founder. If you are really, really good at engineering, if you're a software engineer, for example, and you really want to start a company, find somebody else who has the other experience that you need, right? Fill the gap that you need to really scale up the business. I funded a few deeply technical products that had no business side because they were so technical that it really made sense that a technical leader was leading it, right? So it totally depends on what it is that you're trying to build, what you're thinking about. But you know, one way is to pair up with a co-founder, fill the gaps. The other is to really hone in on your own skills. And potentially you might be the 
founder who is both technical and non-technical. Maybe you evolve into a CEO. Maybe you don't. Maybe you end up developing into the CTO, right? It's totally flexible in early stage startups, which is wonderful. You can go kind of one of those two routes. If you feel a huge gap, you can find a co-founder. If you don't and you think you can do it, why not, right? But <laughs> definitely having gaps shouldn't stop you from being a founder because I still have gaps. We all still have gaps. You will still have gaps decades from now. <laughs> and it's really about, again, finding the right people or resources to help fill those gaps or developing them yourself. Yeah, definitely. So I know earlier we chatted a little bit about how entrepreneurial resources just seem much more accessible these days mm-hmm. on campuses and Santa Clara is getting very, very good at it as well. And I know students who just study entrepreneurship, like that is their major. That's how they know that they mm-hmm. want to be entrepreneurs. There are other students who study other things, but a passion project just turns into a venture. Sure. Do you think there's a right way for students to approach entrepreneurship or not necessarily? I don't know that I do. Again, I think there's probably a million ways to come into entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So something that I really look for on an investor side is what I call founder market fit. So we've probably all heard about product market fit at this point, right? Where you're trying to find a market that actually wants and needs your product enough that, and it's big enough that you can really scale it up and you get that sort of traction to the point where it's really scalable. Founder market fit to me is, if not more important in the early stages, where I'm looking for a founder who really deeply understands their market. Maybe they came from maybe they worked in it, maybe they use the product, whatever it is, but knows it so innately. This is sort of my path in, you know, I just invested in a company called Hue and Grace that makes hormone safe beauty products. And the founders married a couple who went through years and years of infertility issues, and it stemmed from hormonal disruption. And so they wanted to create an entire business that offered products that were hormone safe so that people didn't have to go through that same issue, right? And so it's not a software company, but they were their customer. They know the problem. They know what it looked like. They're not doctors, you know, they had to go find the people to bring in the technical expertise, but their story was the thing that they were building, right? And so I often look for that and actually probably won't invest in a company that doesn't have that sort of what I call founder market fit. And so you can 100% come from an entrepreneurship program where really what it's teaching you is the mini MBA, right? Like how to think about fundraising, how to think about financial modeling. That Those are great skills. If that's what you learn in an entrepreneurship program, what I caution against potentially, there have been tons of successful people who've done it, is the, I'm just going to create kind of a list of ideas, pick one from it and start a business, right? And I, I remember distinctly having coffee maybe six years ago, seven years ago with a founder who did that, right? And he sat down, he went, he just got in his MBA, create a list and said, I'm going to do this thing. And I said, well, why are you going to do it? And he said, because I made a list. This was the best idea. I said, there's no way you're going to be around in seven years and 10 years because you have no excitement for it. You don't see the passion. You don't understand the mechanics of why you're doing this. You just want to be an entrepreneur. And there's nothing wrong with just wanting to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is find that thing that you can't get out of bed without thinking about, right? That thing that you're so passionate about that you so have to build and do that, right? Definitely, you can come at it from either direction. One maybe has a little bit more experience from the, the educational programming, but but not necessarily. The other way to do it, by the way, is like go work for a startup, right? Mm-hmm. If the first job that you have is working for a startup, you are going to get an absolute crash course in how to run a startup, especially if it's early stage, because you're going to learn all of the things that that founder does. And you're going to say, oh, I would do that. I wouldn't do that. I would do that. Oh, that's how that's done. And if you, again, have that curiosity that I talked about earlier, there's going to be the fastest way to jump right in and say, oh, 
you know what? I'm ready now. I can start a company because that's, I know what I would do and what I wouldn't do. And you still make mistakes, but Mm -hmm. you know, you at least kind of get that starting ground and that can come from working for a startup. It can come from an MBA. It can come from an entrepreneurship program, undergrad. Uh, It can come from anywhere, but I think you can get there side of any way, as long as it's the thing that you really want to build. And you kind of have some experience operationally in, in one of those areas. Yes. Thank you for sharing that for any students listening. A lot of, I think college students are are brilliant. Yeah. A lot of them have a lot of good ideas. that sometimes don't go anywhere because they're not sure the first steps if they're actually interested in creating something out of it. So back to the basics, do you have any advice or suggestions on how people can start beyond the idea? Yeah, talk to customers. So this is always my number one advice is going to be is figure out who the potential buyer of the thing that you're doing is. This doesn't have to be venture backed stuff. Just figure out who your target market is and go talk to them. Really easy to do, right? Just get out there, talk to people, see if they would really buy the thing or what they would want to see different. But try and understand. And this is the thing that we look first as an investor, right? But also founders, you have to do this exercise is who are you selling to? Do you know enough that they're out there, that they're willing to buy, that they're interested in this thing? And then is that pool of candidates big enough to sell into, right? So if you're going the venture backed route, we always talk about the billion dollar markets. It's, you know, you have to have this billion dollar opportunity and there have to be enough people in that billion dollar market that, you know, they are really interested and that you can kind of prove that they're interested in this thing. And that would always be the first stop. So as soon as you have an idea, go talk to people about it. A lot of people hold it really close to the chest for too long and they sort of want to keep it in stealth. I say, throw it all out the window, go talk to customers and figure out if it's a real problem or not. And don't talk to your friends. Uh, Like don't talk to your friends or talk to your mom. Your mom's going to tell you it's a great idea. Go talk to like people you don't know who are as far away from you as humanly possible. Create a survey, give them a call, whatever it is, but just try and figure out if it's a real thing. And if it seems like it is, then start the process, incorporate, build the foundation for what you're doing and start to really kick in to, you know, start building it, start testing Mm -hmm. it. You know, if you haven't read The Lean Startup, it's pretty much the, I think the Bible on startup stuff, but it's a great sort of first step to think about how to iterate and test and invite your customers to participate. And so that would be what I would do. A caveat to all of that, by the way, is that don't listen to everything your customers say, right? Because if you do, you're going to end up building custom solutions for every single person you talk to. So what you need to be kind of get good at is sitting at this intersection of this is my idea. Here's the vision I see for the future of the world with my product. Here's what customers are saying to me in a spectrum. And then here's what we realistically can do. And you kind of sit at this intersection and push it forward. And it's hard. That's really, really hard to do. But yeah, step one, I'd go talk to customers. That's great advice. And one of the first facts, I guess, that I heard, because I took a few entrepreneurial courses during college, was that most businesses fail, (laughs) period, because they don't talk to customers before launching a product, which I thought was crazy. Yeah, it's something insane too. So like, what is it? 90% of startups fail, right? Just off the bat. Mm-hmm. But I think CB Insights like, years ago did a survey on this. The number one reason that they failed, exactly what you're saying. Number one reason was the market didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Like there was not really a need. There wasn't a market for it, which is insane. You should be able to figure that out. Now, like hindsight, right? It's not as easy as it sounds. You could survey a yeah. million people and it sounds like there's a market and there still isn't one. And that always happens. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely talk to customers. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Do you have any last words of wisdom for aspiring entrepreneurs? What I would say is build, especially now that you're 
likely in college or in that sort of time period of your life. What I would really advise early on, and it's something that I did without even thinking about it, and I sort of wish I had been more thoughtful and more intentional about it, is this is a period where you're going to be surrounded by so many people who are brilliant, maybe even like peak of naive creativity, which I love. That's a period that like I thrived in where you just think you can solve everything. And like that energy and that focus and is is really, really exciting. I would really recommend forming a personal board of directors where you kind of harness all of that, right? Put a professor on it, put a colleague on it, put when you start your internships, if you're going to do an internship or your first job, ask your boss if you like them to, to be on your board of directors, your personal board of advisors because where that really comes in handy is if you choose to go down the route of entrepreneurship, and and I'm assuming because this is my final words of wisdom to entrepreneurs that you are, that becomes so handy. And I still call upon my friends who are sort of in that circle to me, that more professional sort of board of directors circle to me all the time. And especially when you sort of start to be able to do this, put entrepreneurs, put other entrepreneurs on it, right? Because nobody on this planet, it's a really lonely job for what it's worth, being an entrepreneur. Nobody on this planet, though, will understand what you're going through better than another founder. And so the more that you can call them at four in the morning and say, oh my goodness, this is, thing is falling apart. How do what, did this ever happen to you? And they'll say, oh yeah, that was last Thursday. Let me tell you how I fixed it, right? So the more that you can put people on there, put, you know, again, put a professor, put a colleague, put your boss on it. Uh, anybody that you can meet that's an entrepreneur, reach out to people on LinkedIn. Founders are pretty open. Reach out to founders on LinkedIn or Twitter. Ask them to be on that board of directors and keep them involved. Like keep them active and involved like you would a board of directors because it becomes really useful later on. Thank you for that. Thank you again for joining us. It was great chatting with you. Yeah, same. To anyone tuning in, thank you for joining us. As always at Opal, we shine brighter together and we'll see you next time.